would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 887. We'll be looking together at verses 1 through 21 of John 3 this evening. Before turning to God's Word, would you pray with me? Our Lord, what a privilege it is always to gather and to open up your Word, to read it and to study it together. May we as your people come with attitudes of um, submissive and teachable hearts this night, longing for wisdom, longing for the eternal truth of your word to be impressed upon our hearts. We have a responsibility to be attentive, and yet we acknowledge at the same time that without your sovereign work of grace, we would be lost and undone in our sins. And we pray even this night for the work of your Holy Spirit uh, to work sanctifying, persevering grace in the lives of those your chosen people. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So we've been studying this Gospel of John together in our large group meetings on Wednesday nights. We've noted that John, as he writes, writes with what we could call a selective purpose. John is an eyewitness to the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus. And in that, he is selective in the things that he writes about because he could have written so much more about the life of Christ. But that which he does record is recorded for a purpose. A purpose which he tells us about in chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so John writes in order to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the long-awaited and expected Messiah, the one who would redeem his people from their sins. And the calling before us is to believe. One way that we should approach the gospel of John, one way that we should approach really all of God's word, of course, is with a humble, teachable attitude, ready and willing to believe, to respond again and again in faith and repentance as we marvel at the words and deeds of our faithful and wonderful Savior. And so John builds his case throughout this gospel showing us that Jesus is the Christ in two main ways. One is through miraculous signs that Jesus performs. And the second is through conversations, through discourses as he engages many throughout this gospel narrative. Signs and teachings, those are the two main ways that John holds before us Jesus as the Christ. Here in chapter 3, we come to the first of several lengthy discourses in John's gospel in which Jesus reveals his identity and helps us to understand our great need. So let's look here at verse 1 of chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God." Now let's first this evening talk about Nicodemus, who comes by night to speak with Jesus. Nicodemus is not only a Jew and a Pharisee, but he's a member of what's known as the Sanhedrin. So if we were to take sort of a a pyramid of influence, of importance in terms of the Jewish structure, those who were members of the Sanhedrin would be at the very top of that pyramid of influence, of value, of importance. Now, a member of the Sanhedrin would be considered those who are among the spiritually elite. They don't get there overnight. They don't get there by campaigning for some sort of an election. But they get there because of their ability, because of their influence, because of their understanding. Nicodemus exhibits these characteristics, and I think we see a glimpse of his character here in his conversation with Jesus. Now, typically when we encounter Jesus and his interactions with the religious leaders... They are full of hostility towards him. And as time goes on, as we read through the Gospels, we know that that hostility toward Jesus simply increases as time goes on to the point where they want to kill him. But here we come across one from those religious leaders who is different. Nicodemus is different because of his attitude toward Jesus. He doesn't come to Jesus looking to pick a fight with him. He doesn't come, as some of the other religious leaders do, seeking to sort of pin him in a corner, trying to trap him in his own words. But he approaches him as rabbi. And that doesn't mean necessarily that he sees Jesus as an authority over him, but at least he seems to be willing to listen and dialogue with Jesus, perhaps even to be challenged. And in the words of Jesus that follow, it's undoubtedly more than he ever bargained for. And we read in verse 2 that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And there's all sorts of theories as to why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. We're not exactly sure why John records this detail. One possible reason is simply because he came at night. (laughs) That might seem somewhat obvious, but John is an eyewitness to this event. And so anytime we read details like that that seem to be somewhat extraneous, it helps us to be affirmed that we are reading historical data. And that gives to us, I think, um, comfort that we have a reliable uh, record of such events. 
Some say he may have come at night out of fear for what other religious leaders might think of him. I think that's reading a bit too much into the text. Later in John chapter 7, Nicodemus seems to come to the defense of Jesus when he's accused by the religious leaders. And then in John chapter 19, at Jesus' crucifixion, Nicodemus helps arrange a dignified burial for him. And so Nicodemus doesn't seem, at least at those points, chapter 7 and chapter 19, to be really concerned about what others might think of him. So I don't think that he comes to Jesus at night out of fear. He might have come at night simply because this gave him opportunity to have more attention, undivided attention with Jesus, to have an intimate and extensive conversation with him without being interrupted by the crowds. Now, there are other extra-biblical historical records that lead us to believe that teachers of the law would dialogue late into the night, giving instruction to those who would come to them. So this wouldn't have been out of the ordinary for a conversation like this to occur in the night hours. And one other thought is seen later in the text itself in verses 19 through 21. Here, John talks about those who are in the darkness. That is, those who are still lost in their sins and blind to the work of Jesus. And he contrasts those in darkness with those who are in the light, who have been renewed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, John means more than one thing when he writes. And so it's very possible that he is giving us a literary clue into the darkness of Nicodemus' heart. That Nicodemus comes at night because he is still in the darkness. And until the light of God's grace comes to him, he will remain in the darkness. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he asks sort of this open-ended question, this open-ended statement rather. We know that you are a teacher from God because no one can do such amazing things unless God is with him. And perhaps he thought that Jesus would perform more miraculous signs for him to observe. Perhaps he thought that Jesus would explain some of the miraculous things that Nicodemus has already seen. But instead, Jesus immediately launches into this instruction about the necessity of new birth. And right off the bat, Nicodemus is lost and confused about the words of Jesus telling him that he must be born again. His head is swimming with language that he has never considered before. And what we need to understand, first of all, is that the failure or the ability to come to Christ is not a matter of intelligence. Here is one who is grounded in the scriptures of the Old Testament, one who is of the elite within Jewish society. If you had Nicodemus over to your house and you pulled down the Bible trivia game, this is the guy you want on your team. (laughs) No matter how gifted or understanding one might be, he does not get what Jesus is talking about, and neither will we unless God in his grace intervenes. It is not for lack of information that anyone rejects Jesus, but it's for hardness of heart. It's not through intelligence that anyone understands, but only by sovereign grace. And so if we understand sovereign grace, that means that we ought to be among the most humble of people. If you understand what Jesus is teaching in the Bible... That's only because the Holy Spirit has saved you by grace and mercy. There is never a place for pride and arrogance in the Christian life. 
any insight that you might have, any understanding of God's word, any application of that truth to your life has nothing to do with your mental abilities or your moral effort. But it has everything to do with God's grace to you. If you read through the book of John, you will find that in every discourse of Jesus, there is an emphasis that he places upon sovereign, divine, electing grace. Now, this doctrine of sovereign grace is not something that we as Presbyterians just like to spew about every single Sunday. This is something that is found upon every page of Scripture. This is a central doctrine to the truth of God's Word. Carl Truman, in speaking about preaching, as he's talking about Luther's theology of the cross, in which Luther says the preacher's job is to lead the congregation to absolute despair in themselves, that they would see their helpless and hopeless condition and only then be aware of their need for sovereign grace. Now, that's not something that Luther came up with. We see it in the teaching and preaching of Jesus. Despair in the self that we might see our need for grace. Grace, by its very nature, is sovereign grace, divinely initiated grace, electing grace. Grace that does not begin with God's initiative is not grace at all. And that really brings us to our second point. Why is Nicodemus and why are we in need of such grace? Well, it's because of what Jesus teaches us here about human nature. If there is the necessity of rebirth, then Jesus is teaching us that our human nature is fallen and dead in sin. And if that fallen nature resides in each one of us, then we are all in need of sovereign, divine, electing grace. And whenever you see these words in John's gospel, truly, truly, I say to you, or as the old King James read, verily, verily, I say unto you, it's a way to really emphasize with authority and with certainty that what Jesus says is reliable, trustworthy, and true. Twenty-five times in John's gospel, we come across this double emphasis. Truly, truly, I say to you. And oftentimes when we see Jesus use those words, it's in the middle of a discourse that he's having with someone in order to emphasize the centrality of what he's saying at that point. And here, it's truly, truly, you must be born again. By using this emphasis, by using these words of necessity... What we see is that Jesus is not just one option among many paths to God, but that this is a prerequisite necessary for kingdom entrance. Now, the message of the exclusivity of the gospel has always been offensive. Enlightenment philosopher G.E. Lessing, who lived in the 18th century, said that you cannot build your religion upon historical things like the resurrection of Jesus because we can't prove such things using modern historical methods. Instead, he said, we just need to hold to the truth of Christianity without the history of Christianity, as though we can separate those two things. Lessing illustrated it like this. He said, a father has a ring that represents the truth of God's love. And whoever possesses that ring will be transformed by it. The father has three sons, and he wants to give that ring to each of his sons, but he can't divide the ring. And so he creates two more rings, identical to the first, 
to pass one on to each of his sons. And no one knows who has the true ring, but they are to live as though they have the true one so that they can learn to transcend their differences so that the highest ideal of love might prevail. So it doesn't really matter which ring you have, just live as though you have the truth because you can't really be certain that you have it. And so as Christianity gets reduced then simply to a religion of ethics. And this parable of blessing is a great example of the foolishness of what so many continue to believe in our own time. Because this is not at all what Jesus himself is teaching. It's not a religion of ethics, but of atonement, of the need for rebirth, of the necessity of regeneration. There is one kingdom of God, and there is only one way to see that kingdom. And what is that one way? It's rebirth, regeneration. You must be born again. This is the prerequisite for kingdom entrance. Now, here's why this is so difficult for Nicodemus to grasp. He knows that we had nothing to do with our first birth into this world. And so if we must be born again, well, then there's nothing that we can do to bring about that rebirth. Nicodemus is a very educated, religious, and moral man, and he has constructed an entire system of belief that is opposed to what Jesus is saying. Nicodemus has been teaching many fellow Jews what they must do in order to enter the kingdom of God. And now Jesus is coming along and destroying his facade of perceived righteousness. He is showing Nicodemus that the path that he is on, that he thinks leads to God, is actually a path that plummets into the abyss of despair. Jesus is saying that everyone, regardless of status, education or moral achievements must lay aside that notion of self-righteousness and must be born again. And this work of regeneration must come from God alone. For there is nothing that we can do, nothing that we can contribute to that need that we have for redemption. One of my favorite Old Testament narratives is from 2 Kings chapter 5, in which Naaman, you'll recall that commander of the mighty Syrian army is afflicted with leprosy. And he comes to the house of the prophet Elisha with his military entourage, with gifts of gold and silver and fine clothing. And he expects to be given some task to perform in order to prove his worth and his value. But instead, Elisha the prophet doesn't even come out of his humble home to speak with Naaman, but sends his servant out to him and tells him, that he is to go and dip himself in the Jordan River and he will, be, he will be healed. And at first, Naaman is filled with rage. This message of grace, this message of complete inability is offensive to him. It seeks to disrupt everything that he has built his life upon. But as he humbles himself, as he listens to the word of God through the prophet and he obeys, he finds healing. And he finds cleansing. If we don't understand our true condition, our utter helplessness, then we will never see the only hope that we have of salvation. And just as it was a struggle so many years ago for Naaman, it's a struggle for Nicodemus as well. All that he had labored for in his life was built around his own morality, his own intelligence, his own reverence toward God. 
It was all based upon instructing others in that same pattern. But Jesus is challenging all of this. To tell him that he must be born again is to completely shatter his worldview as nothing that he has done matters in his standing before God. See your true condition for what it is. See that there is nothing that you can do to ascend to God. Here's what we must all realize about ourselves. The truth that Paul says about us in Romans chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It is said that Charles Spurgeon each Lord's Day as he approached his pulpit said this prayer, God be merciful to me a sinner. And that's the cry that must continually come from our own hearts as well. A true understanding of your condition leads you to see the impossible nature of saving yourself. And that brings us to our next point. What hope is there for us? If you are dead in your sins, if it's impossible for you to make yourself born again, if it's impossible for you to save yourself and give yourself a new nature, that new nature that's required for kingdom entrance, then what hope is there for you? What is it that you need? Well, the work of the Spirit to bring about new birth. Look again at verses 5 through 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now notice the logic of Jesus here. Rebirth is necessary for kingdom entrance. Only the one who is born of water and the Spirit can enter the kingdom of God. Therefore, rebirth is equated with being born of water and the Spirit. And so when Nicodemus doesn't understand rebirth, Jesus explains to him that rebirth is the product of the cleansing and renewing and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is not talking here about baptism. The water refers to the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit who purifies within. Newness of life is produced by the Spirit alone. And here Jesus very simply is telling us the Holy Spirit alone brings about that necessary work of rebirth. The Holy Spirit alone is the one who changes those hardened hearts, regenerating them from within. The Holy Spirit causes us to be born of water, cleansing us from our defilements and rebellion. You see, we could think here of the two biggest tragedies that sin brings into our lives. Judicial guilt and moral corruption. We are dead in our sins. We are declared guilty and we are defiled. And so the work of the Holy Spirit in this work of regeneration addresses these problems and that we are declared righteous and we are cleansed of our corruption. And notice the Holy Spirit works in whatever way he wishes. Here is another emphasis upon this doctrine of sovereign grace. Verse 8, the wind blows wherever it wishes, so it is with the Spirit. The word for wind is the same word for spirit, both in Greek and in Hebrew. And no doubt you've noticed the effects of winds when you're out on a lake. 
when you're riding your bike. It seems as though when you're doing those things, it doesn't matter which way you're going, you're always fighting the wind. It's always swirling about you, isn't it? You have no idea where it's coming from, where it's going. But what can we see? We see its results. We see its effects. In the same way, we don't see the Holy Spirit, but we see his results. We see his impact in the lives of those whose nature he changes. F.F. Bruce says, The hidden work of the Spirit in the human heart cannot be controlled or seen, but its effects are unmistakably evident. And what are the effects of the Spirit renewing his work within us? What is the visible evidence of that regenerating work of the Spirit? Well, John says later, it is the love for God's truth, a love for the light. These are the things that are evident in one whose life has been renewed, is a love to gather and worship the Lord, a love for his word of truth, a longing for that truth to bear fruit in your life, evidence in your life of living in the light. Well, now everything is crystal clear for Nicodemus, isn't it? Now, look at verse 9. How can these things be? And notice then in verse 10, Jesus rebukes him. You are the teacher of Israel. You are among the elite, and yet you don't understand? It's interesting here that Jesus doesn't backpedal, trying to make the gospel more palatable for Nicodemus. He doesn't change his message just because Nicodemus doesn't understand. But he continues to press home this doctrine of sovereign grace. You must see your need for the gracious intrusion of God into your life. And Jesus is pointing out his failure to truly understand scriptures that he should have understood. Turn with me, if you will, to Ezekiel chapter 36. In Ezekiel 36 and chapters 37 both... I'll read a few verses here, and as I read, notice how much these two passages sound like Jesus' words in John chapter 3. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In chapter 37, look at verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so in these passages from Ezekiel, We have these words that point out man's inability and God's powerful ability to change us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so as a teacher of God's word, Nicodemus should have understood that Jesus is teaching a spiritual reality that has always been true. That only the Spirit can change man's nature. And this brings us to our final point tonight. And that is to consider some of the things that hinder Nicodemus. Some things that hinder us from finding new life in Christ. Even things, if we are in union with Christ, that act as potential hindrances from us growing and maturing in the Christian life. 
You see, as much as Nicodemus is in need of sovereign grace, he is still responsible for his failure to understand. He is still responsible for his hardness of heart. As you look at Nicodemus, his biggest problem is a spiritual blindness that flows from a heart of pride. His entire system was built around morality, his own understanding, and personal ability. Well, now he's being driven to an end of himself, and he has yet to lay aside that pride, humble himself before Jesus, and acknowledge that he needs the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. John Calvin says, There is no greater obstacle to us than our own pride. We wish to be wise beyond what is proper and reject with pride the things that do not fit into our own fallen reason. None of us likes admitting inability. None of us wants to admit that we might be wrong and that we too need sovereign grace. Pride. We all have it. We need to acknowledge it, to see it, to put it to death, and to humble ourselves before the living God. No one can ascend into heaven, but only the Son of Man who has descended from heaven. And so humble yourself and cry out for sovereign mercy. What else keeps people from experiencing rebirth? What else keeps us from new life in Christ? Well, fear of exposure and love for darkness. Look again at verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And so here John builds upon this theme of light and darkness that he touched on way back in his prologue in chapter 1. This is a powerful metaphor for us to consider. Human nature loves the darkness. It gets accustomed to the darkness and reels against the light which exposes the darkness of our hearts. Ethically and morally and spiritually, exposure to God's word reveals things about our inner life that are uncomfortable. And rather than our hearts be exposed, many prefer to just be left alone remaining in the darkness, a darkness that they find more comfortable. Because if that darkness of the heart is exposed, then that means change must follow. And we don't want to change who we are because, again, that would entail an admission of fault on our part. And so it's pride and it's fear that keeps us loving the darkness and hating the light. But notice that we really don't have a reason for pride or a reason for fear. We are all the same, lost in our sins, dead in our rebellion against God. We are all in need of his sovereign work of grace. And that deals with our pride because we are all broken and needy and dependent people. And we learn in verses 16 and 17 that it's the love of God that has sent Jesus into the world. Jesus came not to condemn, but to save us. And that drives out the fear within the human heart. We don't have to be afraid because he knows our hearts already and we can come to him for forgiveness. We can come to him for grace. We can admit our failures and ask his help for lasting change. And so if you happen to be a person riddled with guilt, understand the forgiveness offered through Christ. 
Understand the love of God that Jesus came to save you from your sins. You see, the great warning from this text is that if we perish in our sins, it's because we prefer the darkness to the light. We bring a condemnation upon ourselves. So how do we find this gift of eternal life that Jesus offers? How do we experience this rebirth that comes only from above? Well, Jesus helps us understand what true faith is back in verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And here Jesus is referring to an event in Israel's history all the way back in Numbers chapter 21. It's there that the children of Israel complain about the manna, despising the provision of God and his faithfulness for the people. And they say to the Lord, we loathe this worthless food. In other words, we hate your method of sustaining our life. It's quite an indictment against the Lord who has redeemed them. And as judgment upon them, the Lord sends poisonous snakes among them. They cry out for mercy. And God tells Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and everyone who looks to it in faith will be healed. Well, that seems like a really strange thing to do, doesn't it? Take an image of the very thing that is destroying us. Put it on a pole so that by looking at it, by faith, we are healed. And now Jesus says, in the same way, the Son of Man will be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Here's what Jesus is teaching. That snake in the desert was a picture, a shadow of what I have come to do. Just as that cursed thing was put on a pole and the people merely had to look in faith to have their life restored, to really be born again, so I will become a curse for you, lifted up upon the cross. And all that is required is that you acknowledge your need for him. Look to him in faith. Look to him as you lay aside your pride. Look to him as you lay aside your fear. See there upon the cross the love of God the Father for you to send his only begotten Son, not to condemn you, but to grant you eternal life. And notice that freedom from condemnation and the possession of eternal life are both things that happen as soon as one trusts in Christ. There is a present possession of freedom from guilt and life eternal and a present possession that will be seen in fullness at the end of the age. Jesus came to save, not to condemn. Yet a day is coming when he will judge. There is salvation for those who believe, but salvation for those who believe implies judgment for those who do not. And that's made clear later in John chapter 5. There was a pop artist a number of years ago who visited the Louvre in Paris And when he saw the Mona Lisa, he said, it's rubbish. (laughs) Now, of course, no one was sitting around for hundreds of years waiting for this pop artist to show up and pronounce his assessment of a piece of art. The Mona Lisa is not rubbish just because he says so. Such a statement reveals more about him than it does the art itself. It shows him to be arrogant, presumptuous, proud, and foolish. The one who rejects Christ calling his work upon the cross foolishness, calling his work rubbish, does not make a statement about the work of Christ. 
his identity, his person, his work is in no way dependent upon the witness or the belief of man. But the one who rejects him stands condemned already because he has not believed in the one and only Son. And so the question for each of us is, what is your response to the beauty of the Lord Jesus? When you look to him upon the cross, lifted up as a curse for your salvation, do you see in faith with a heart of love and gratitude? Or do you look with scorn, disbelief, indifference, lack of awe? Your response to Jesus reveals more about you than it does the work of Christ. Your response to Jesus has consequences that will determine your destiny. Reject the Son and remain under God's wrath. Or believe in Him and receive the promised gift of eternal life. Nothing in the universe is more important. Nothing else demands a more urgent response. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word of truth, which penetrates deep into our hearts, showing us our need for sovereign, divine, electing grace. What a mystery it is to consider the way in which the Holy Spirit works. And yet, may we be ever grateful, filled with gratitude, and hearts filled with thanksgiving for such a work in our own lives. May we be faithful and consistent to pray for those who who don't know you. And may the gospel go forth week after week from this pulpit, calling all to look to the Lord Jesus, the one in whom alone we find life and forgiveness of sins. In his name we pray. Amen.